Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We've been going through Colossians, and uh, I'm actually going to take a break from Colossians. I see some of you are turning to Colossians. We're actually going to take a break from Colossians. Um, you as a fellowship send me out once a year to the Senior Pastors Conference in Murrieta, um, California, and that's where all the Calvary Chapel senior pastors meet and uh, have a conference. And it's for me, it's just it's like it's it's good for me. I, I really need it after a long year of, you know, it, it almost feels like we're out in the mission field, Calvary Chapel wise. Because if you're in California, you could go back, you know, just about every block. There's a Calvary Chapel, you know, practically, especially Southern California. And uh, but out here, we're kind of few and far between. And so, you know, the fellowship's a little harder here. And so, you know, it almost feels like I'm out in a mission field with you savages. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> you know, ministering. And then it's such a blessing. <laughs> You're not savages. It's such a blessing <laughs> to be able to go and just to fellowship with pastors that have the same heart, have the same, you know, vision, have the same style of ministry. A lot of them, especially in the Midwest and other places in, in the U.S., have small churches. And so, you know, there's that camaraderie and just a way to encourage one another. And anyways, um, this last conference, every year I go, I'm, I'm blessed and encouraged, and I come back with things that's like, oh, I really want to... You know, take this back to my church. And uh, one of the last speakers of the conference um, was a guy by the name of Wes Bentley, and he is the pastor of Maranatha Chapel in San Diego. And uh, he was actually one of the first church plants of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa um, when they started started spreading out, basically. And uh, anyways, he shared a message with us pastors, and uh, I heard that, and I go, man, I, w- I want to. I want the church to see this DVD. And then I thought, you know, I don't want to just have them see the DVD. So I did the, I kind of prepared a message based on what was shared there because I thought it was so exciting and it's something that encouraged me so much. And so I'm praying that it will encourage you this morning as well. So we're not in Colossians this morning. Um, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. So this is a little bit different for me. I don't typically do, if you want to call it topical messages. But we're going to be in Revelation starting out chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. This is uh, the letter uh, to the church of Philadelphia. It's the, the letter that uh, uh, Jesus basically dictated to John and had John send this to the church in Philadelphia. And so beginning with verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we know from history that these letters to the seven churches, were written to seven historic, living, specific churches that, that existed in Asia Minor at the time that John was writing these letters. We also know, or at least I do, maybe you don't, but <laughs> these are also written to specific types of churches. Uh, for example, there's a letter to the suffering church. And we know, you know, our church isn't suffering, but we know that there's churches like, for example, in countries like Indonesia, that they're, they're suffering. 
You know, I am, I'm sure that there's believers in Iran right now and in Syria that are suffering. And so there's, uh, there's churches that are suffering. So there was letters that are written that are specific for suffering churches. There's also letters to legalistic churches. Churches that have lost their, their love, their first love. They've gotten so, they've done everything right. They've been by the book. They've been fundamental in everything. But they've lost their love of Jesus Christ. They became too legalistic. And there's the types of churches out there. And then, of course, there's the dead church, the church of Laodicea. And, and, you know, as a pastor, I'm always praying, Lord, let me be the church of Philadelphia. Let us be the church of Philadelphia. I don't ever want to be one of those other churches. Um, the ones that are rebuked, I should say. You know, I don't want to be the, a, a church that's rebuked. And so that's, of course, a, probably a prayer of every pastor, I'm sure. But not only were these letters written to specific historic churches in their day and in their time, and also written to specific types of churches, but I believe these were also written to specific believers within all churches. Because you can have people even in this fellowship who are maybe caught up in legalism. They're just, you know, they, they're doing everything right, but they've lost their love for the Lord. Or someone who's dead. You know, they're, they're just not walking with the Lord and they're just, you know, they're here in body and they, maybe they profess Christ, but their lives don't show it. Or perhaps someone who's being persecuted. In the, for their faith, maybe in the workplace or in your family or whatever. So there, these letters, you know, when you read these letters, the, there's so much application for us as individuals. Now, there's one other application. And I believe a case can be made that these seven letters to the seven churches were also written regarding seven specific periods of church history. Years ago, when we did a study in Revelation, I remember going through that, and we talked about that at one point. Um, and, and, and if you look at the history of the church, and you, and you follow these letters of, of, of uh, Revelation, you can see periods, and I, we don't have time to get into that this morning, but I believe, personally, that the letter to the church of Philadelphia is the age of the church today, as far as the Christ-centered evangelical church of today. And the reason why I say that is because, or following, I should say, that line of reasoning, the next church, historically, if you want to put them in church periods, is the church of Laodicea. And, I, and it comes after the age of the church of Philadelphia. Now, I believe, like I said, the Christ-centered evangelical church of today can be compared to the age of the church of Philadelphia. And the church of Philadelphia, I believe is going to be here when the rapture of the church takes place. I think verse 10 alludes to it. He says there, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so I believe that, I personally, with all my heart, believe that that's speaking to you and I today as believers. The Church of Laodicea, the church that comes after the Church of Philadelphia, it's known as the lukewarm church. And I believe that that is the church, if you can call it a church, that will exist after the rapture of the true believers. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says to that church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. If you look at those letters to those seven churches, what's fascinating is that's the only church that Christ is outside of the church saying, hey, let me in, let me in. All the other churches, Christ is there. He's in, you know, he's speaking to them. He has maybe some words of rebuke, some words of correction, but this is the only church that he's standing outside. And that's why I believe this points to the church, or if you can call it the church, that will exist um, during the tribulation. This morning, however, I want to focus on verse 11 of chapter 3. Behold, I am coming quickly. That's Jesus' words to the church. And I believe that's Jesus' words to us today as well this morning. That word behold, it's also lo. It means to see or to look or to, you know, if we would put it in our vernacular today, it'd be like, check this out. It's like Jesus saying, check this out, man. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. What's fascinating to me is that word quickly actually has two meanings. Quickly, first the first meaning is shortly. You know, soon. I'm coming quickly. I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be there like in an, in a minute or something. You know, it's soon. It, it's relative to time. 
And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming very soon. And you might say, wait a minute, 2,000 years ago this letter was penned. How can you say that that's soon? I mean, 2,000 years ago, you know, how is that soon? Well, we need to remember one thing. With the Lord, the Bible says, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So it's been 2,000 years. So basically, it's like Jesus has gone from, been gone for the weekend. He goes, man, I'm coming back on Monday for you guys. So really, if you look in God's economy, he's only been gone the weekend. But I think this also speaks of God's mercy. You know, the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And praise God, I'm thankful that the Lord tarried so far because I, he gave me an opportunity to get my heart right with him. He's given you an opportunity to get right your heart with him. So praise God that he hasn't come right away, if you think about it. So not only does behold, I am coming quickly mean shortly or soon, but the other meaning of it also means suddenly. In Matthew twenty four twenty seven, Jesus said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Just like that, in a blink of an eye. The Bible also says, or Jesus even says, that he'll come as a thief in the night. And the whole point in what Jesus was saying to the church and saying to the believers and saying to you and I as well this morning is not only is it soon, it's at the door, but it's going to be sudden. And when it happens, you know, there's people that say, well, I'll just wait and I'll just wait. No, there won't be time to prepare because it'll be that soon. By the time he appears, it'll be too late if you're not ready today, if you're not ready right now. So what's the message? What, what, what can we take from that? Well, it's like Jesus said and John the Baptist said and, and the, the apostles basically taught, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, it's at hand. It's like it's close as your hand is to your face. It's there. And, and in God's economy, he is coming back really, really soon. Now, of course, in reality, the kingdom of heaven is at hand for all of us. You might say, well, how, do you, how can you say that? How do you know that you know, we're going to be the church or the people that are alive at the rap, when the rapture occurs? Well, at some time, and I'll add at some unexpected time, Either Jesus is returning for the church, for you and for I, or you and I are going to die at some unexpected time and we're going to stand face to face before Him. It's coming soon. And, you know, unless you've been told by a doctor that you you know, have a certain amount of time to live, no one knows when that time will be. I'm constantly reminded of how short life is and how suddenly things can change for people, when you hear stories of, of people that, you know, they've been given a short time to live or, or they've just died suddenly, something tragic's happened and, and they've, they've died right away. And, uh, you know, the, the point being, you and I need to be ready and have our hearts right with the Lord now because Jesus is coming soon. I like what the apostles, I think, I think it's in Hebrews. I didn't quote it. I didn't write it down. But, you know, it's like our salvation is, is here now nearer than it was before. I'm really heavily paraphrasing. <laughs> but I think that's true, you know. He's coming back soon. Now, some people say, and I've heard it said before, you know, every generation has believed that Jesus is going to come back in their time. Everyone believes that. So, you know, what makes you different from anybody else? And I'd say, right, every generation has believed or, or should have believed that Jesus would return in their time. I think even the apostles, you know, I, you know when Christ gave, uh, you know, his instructions to the church and then he ascended into heaven, I think the disciples expected in their lifetime that Jesus was going to come back. I don't think they thought, well, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a couple millennium. Let's just hang out. And do. No, they knew that Jesus was coming back. Why were they so zealous for spreading the word of the gospel throughout the world? Because they felt that Jesus could come back at any time in their lifetime. And I believe God purposely wants every generation to be looking for and expecting his return. And that's why he says, I'd come back at any time. Why? Because he, it, when, when you know, I mean, I think about when I was a kid, you know, uh, when I was 
a kid and I used to get into some trouble, not necessarily bad trouble, but you know, when your parents go away, it's like party time, you know, you can do whatever you want, you can, you know, and then it's like you, you got to either you have a lookout or you got to know when your parents are coming back because, you know, either you got to clean the house or you got to do whatever, you know, you got, they're coming back. And so you have that expecting time. But if you don't know when your parents are coming back, it's like, I better play it safe and, you know, I better, you know, it, Christ wants you and I to have that attitude. He could come back at any time because he knows if we just think, oh, he's just coming back any other time, we'll just do whatever we want, you know. And he wants you and I to be ready for his return. And so it has a purifying effect on people. Now, if you're a person like me and you look at the news and stuff, I've not seen a lot of good news lately, have you? I, I mean, you look at the, the economy, you look at our politics, you look at the, the situation in the Middle East, you look at, you know, reports about, uh, you know, you name it, famines, uh, reports of water shortages coming up, uh, you know, there's all different things that are going on. Whether or not a person has a faith in Christ Jesus or not, I think most people today have a sense of foreboding that something's coming. They don't know what it is, but something's coming, and it doesn't seem good. Of course, we had the, the Mayan calendar. We made it through that, right, 2012. We, were, we didn't, The world didn't end on uh, whatever that date was, uh, according to the Mayan calendar. But have you noticed how there's a rise in movies and, and stuff that have to deal with, like, global cataclysmic events and the end of the world and stuff? There's been a rise in that. People are thinking about that because it's on everybody's hearts. It's like you look at it and go, well, how can the world sustain itself? How can it keep going at the rate that things are you know, going on in our world around us? Not only that, but I read one thing, uh, one article talking about terrorism, and they said basically global terrorism is here to stay. It's not gonna, we're not going to win the battle on terrorism. It's here. It's, gonna become just, it's just going to be a way of life, basically, for us. And now, of course, there's the fear of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons getting in the hands of, of fanatic people that want to kill, you know. And, and, and so there's all these things, terrorism, like I mentioned, famines, water shortage. Um, you can read about drug-resistant germs, right? It's like now there's, there's these germs that are, that are they're not being affected by, by uh, our medical, you know, our, our medicines that we, we uh, prescribe and everything. And, and it's like we're getting to this point where there's these, you know, super bugs is what they call basically. And, and uh, what's going to happen, these plagues that could start happening as a result of that. You know, you look at the envelope of morality going on and, and how that is being pushed. You know, I was just, I heard something about some television show in the U.K., and uh, basically, it's like live pornography on television, and it's like, and it's a show that's going to be in the in in the, I don't know if it's I'm assuming it's on cable, but whatever in the in the in the UK, and and you go, you know, how much further can the envelope be pushed? I mean, people are pushing the envelope, but how much further can they push the envelope? There's got to come an end to it. And so, whether or not you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not, I think people everywhere have a sense of foreboding. But they're like Belshazzar. You remember who Belshazzar is? Belshazzar was a guy that lived in Daniel's time. He was, I believe, either the grandson or the great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was the ruler of Babylon at the end of Babylon's reign as a world power. It was right before Persia took over as the New World Empire. And in Belshazzar's time... He uh, decided he was going to throw a great big party, you know, just a big drinking party and a big, you know, just all-out hedonistic thing. And so he sent for the temple vessels because Babylon had captured Jerusalem. They had hauled off all the treasures from Jerusalem, and, and he had the temple vessels that were used in the sacred ceremonies of the Jews he said, hey, bring out those, those goblets. Bring out those things, man. We're going to get drunk with those things. And what he was doing, basically, he was mocking the God of Israel. And so they're preparing to do this. They're getting drunk. And you guys probably know the story. A hand appeared on the wall. And it started writing, Meanie, meanie, tekel, you farson. And the Bible says when Belshazzar saw that, he loosed his loins. I, I, <laughs> 
He basically had to change his shorts. That's really what it means. He, he was just like, oh. And he, and he basically freaked out. And, and eventually they ended up having Daniel come to interpret the writing. They saw the handwriting on the wall, but they couldn't interpret it. And people today look at what's going on in the world, and they see the handwriting on the wall, but man, they, they can't interpret it. They, they can't make sense out of it. It's only you and I, the believers of Jesus Christ, you and I, the child of God, the children of God, who have, we know what's going on. We know why things are going the way they are. You know, you look at some of the stuff that our government's doing, and you know, with our politics and stuff, and whether or not you support our current president or what, you know, you look at the decisions that are being made, and, and you can be either be angry, you can be, you know, maybe you're for some of this stuff. But I look at it and I go, you know what? God's just, he's just putting things in place for the last days. I mean, we're that close. Things are becoming, it's starting, it's like the picture's getting clearer and clearer all the time for you and I as a believer. In Luke chapter 12, verse 54, Jesus is talking, and he says, whenever you see, and he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, whenever you see a a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? You and I, we need to be discerning the time, what's happening around us. Did you know that 25% of the Bible is prophecy? 25%, that means one out of every four verses is prophetic, and it's either prophesying Messiah's first coming or his second coming. But one in four verses are prophetic. And when you look at what's going on in our day and in our age, this is an exciting time. It's a fearful time. It's a t- I, I don't like thinking about what's going to be happening to our freedoms and all that stuff. But it's an exciting time because, like I said, it's like the picture is getting clearer and clearer. And we know that Jesus is returning soon. Things are changing so rapidly. The stage is getting set for Christ's second coming. And I believe we of all generations have more reason to believe Christ's return is imminent even at the door than any other generation before us. I think there were prophets that prophesied of the coming of of the Messiah for the second return of Christ who look at our, probably are envious of you and I because we're living in it. We're, We're starting to see those things take place in our lifetime. Psalm 102, verse 11. Interesting verse. Well, verses 11 through 18, I should say. Interesting verses. It says, My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. And the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion, for the time to favor her has come for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust so the nations shall fear the name of the lord and all the kings of the earth your glory for the lord shall build up zion zion is the prophetic name of jerusalem he shall appear in his glory he shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer There's coming a time when the nations are going to fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth are going to fear the glory of the Lord. And when is that? He says that this will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. I think that's written for you and I. That we are the ones who are seeing Zion being built up. That word, the generation yet to come, it's a Hebrew word, acharon. Did I pronounce that right? Acharon? <laughs> I'm good with rolling R's because I'm Dutch. But anyways, um, it says, This prophecy be written for the last generation. The last generation will praise the Lord when they see Zion built up. Did you know that you and I are that generation? It was our generation that saw Zion built up. In 1967... In the Six-Day War, for the first time in 2,000 years, Israel occupied the old city of Jerusalem. 
man, we're the ones that have seen our generation, this, the people that are alive today, we're the ones that have seen Zion being built up. Jesus is coming back soon, guys. Now I want to take you to another chapter, passage of Scripture, and it's in Leviticus. And if you want to turn there, it's Leviticus chapter 23. It's where we have the establishment of the feasts of the Lord. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Notice that he calls them, this is the Lord speaking, my feasts, the feasts of the Lord. They're not the feasts of Israel, though they were. They're not the feast of the Jews, though they were. But Jesus says, these are my feasts. The word feasts is the Hebrew word moed. And it means an appointment, a fixed time or season, specifically a festival. So you go, well, that makes sense. A feast, a festival, you know, a specific, a specific festival or, or a feast time. But it can also mean an appointed sign or a signal. That word moed can also mean an appointed time or a signal. He says, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. What is a convocation? The Greek word migra, and it means a public meeting, an assembly. But it can also mean a rehearsal. So Jesus says, hey, these are my signs and my signals And folks, they're a rehearsal. What are they a rehearsal for? The feasts of the Lord, in addition to what it meant to to the typical Jew, was also a prophetic sign and a signal and even a dress rehearsal for something else. And I believe all of these feasts, in fact, point to Jesus. And they're fulfilled in Jesus. Either they have been already fulfilled in His first coming, or they will be fulfilled in His second coming. Now, if you know anything about the feasts of the Lord, the feasts of Israel that are mentioned here in Leviticus chapter 23, there's seven of them. The first four feasts of the Lord occurred in the spring of the year. These four feasts have already been fulfilled in Christ's first coming. In fact, they were actually fulfilled on the day that they were celebrated. Passover, the very first feast of the year, Jesus was crucified on Passover. He fulfilled the sign and the signal, the rehearsal. It was a rehearsal pointing to His crucifixion. The feast, the next feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then you come to the first Feast of Firstfruits, Jesus resurrected on the Feast of of first fruits. And then you go about, was it 50 days? And you have the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. And that was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples in the upper room. All, uh, excuse me, after these four feasts, so these four feasts, I mean, they're pretty much smack dab right together in the fall. And then there's a relatively long period before the next feast. And it's the summertime. That gap is the summer harvest. And during the harvest, you don't have time for a feast, right? You're busy working. It's time to be working. It's time to be bringing in the harvest. Prophetically, you and I have been part of that 2,000-year harvest. We're in that summertime. And we're to be busy. We're to be about the Lord's work, bringing in the harvest of the Lord. That's where we are at prophetically. The last three feasts, I believe, have yet to be prophetically fulfilled. What are the last three feasts? We have the feast Rosh Hashanah, the feast of trumpets, also known as Yom Teruah. It's the first day of the seventh month. That is a prophetic rehearsal for the rapture of the church. It's a sign and a signal and a prophetic, it's like a dress rehearsal for the rapture of the church. The feast following that is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That's the tenth day of the seventh month also. That is, I believe, a prophetic rehearsal for the seven-year tribulation when God is going to do a special work 
with the people of Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble when their souls will be afflicted. That is yet to be fulfilled. The last feast of the year, of the seven feasts here anyways, is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. It's also known as Sukkot. 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 Sukkot, excuse me. And that is the 15th day of the seventh month. And I believe Sukkot just occurred, right? It just occurred like not too long ago. That, I believe, is a prophetic rehearsal for the millennium. You know what's interesting about that is if you start looking at Old Testament passages that talk about the millennial reign of Christ, that's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, it's interesting. And in Zechariah chapter 14, that describes the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So if you ever wonder, what's it going to be like when Jesus lives and reigns physically on the earth? Go to passages of Scripture like Zechariah 14. It will describe it. What's fascinating about that passage of Scripture is that all the other feasts are done away with except during the millennium, the Feast of Tabernacles is still going to be required. We're going to be participating in the Feast of Tabernacles. Fascinating to me. So, of all the feasts that have not been prophetically fulfilled, what's the next feast on the prophetic timeline to be fulfilled? The Feast of Trumpets. Prophetically, all those, those first four ones have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The next one is Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 23, it's described here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The first day on the seventh month is when this was to be celebrated, and that's when there was a new moon. It signaled the end of the harvest season. It's time to bring the harvest into the temple and worship the Lord. Now there's a pastor by the name of Mark Biltz, And he's got a ministry called El Shaddai Ministries. And he's a a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. He did some research on the Feast of Trumpets. And there's other names for the Feast of Trumpets. Interesting. It's known as the Day of the Awakening Blast. It's known as the Opening of the Gate. It's also known as the Hidden Day. It's also known as the Wedding of the Messiah. And this one's really interesting. It's the feast that you don't know the day or the hour. Fascinating, isn't it? The feast that you don't know the day or the hour. It's like, why would they name it that? Well, apparently, do you guys know what a diaspora is? What the diaspora was? When Rome conquered Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, the Jews were scattered and they were scattered all over the planet, basically. They, they're all over. In fact, you know, if you go to Israel today, you can have African Jews, Chinese Jews, you know, Mexican Jews. I mean, Jews from everywhere because they were scattered all over the face of the earth. That's known as the diaspora, where the Jews were just scattered over. They're, they're dispersed. I don't know if that's why. I don't know if that's the root of that, but sounds good. Anyway, so depending on where you lived... In the diaspora, when was the new moon? When was that day, the day that you were to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets? It really literally depended on where you lived on the planet when you could celebrate that day. And so for the Feast of Trumpets, during the time of the diaspora anyways, they allowed two days for that day. Because depending on where you were globally would be when the, the new moon was. And so that's why they call it the day... Uh, The feast that you don't know the day or the hour. Fascinating to me. Let's take a look at some prophecies that Jesus spoke about regarding the rapture. So if you want to turn in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. The parable of the fig tree. Jesus said this, beginning with verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch 
has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had not known what hour the thief would or if had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Going on to chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. So those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go rather to sell to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other versions came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you, neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You and I as believers were to watch and to be ready. What are we to be watching for? Well, first of all, Jesus gave the parable of the fig tree. Fig tree is symbolic for Israel. You and I, we are the generation to witness major prophetic, a major prophetic signal, and that is Israel itself, the nation of Israel. That is a major, major prophecy fulfillment. What other nation on the face of the earth over any history has come from 2,000 years of being not even, you know, not even on the face of the earth to coming back they have their, their, their language intact. They have their culture intact. They have their religion intact. They even have, they even have their coins intact. I mean, they have, it's, just, it's a miracle. There's no other nation. You don't know any Hittites or Amorites or you know, all these other ites. You don't know them. But Israelites, they've come back. So it's a major, a major prophetic signal for us seeing the nation of Israel. So that alone is something that we should say that and go, whoa, Jesus is coming back soon. Not only that, but he says, as the days of Noah were, so will the days be before the rapture of the church. And, and he gives a description. They'll be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Basically, it means life will go on as usual. And you go, okay, well, life always has gone on as usual. But there's a difference. The days of Noah were a very wicked time. It was a time when the face of the earth was so corrupt and there was violence everywhere. And if you look at the news today, 
I mean, you look at that and go, I think we're living in Noah's time again. We're, we're there. We're t- everyone's pushing the envelope of sin and evil. Psalm 119.126 says, It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. It's time for you to act, Lord, because they're regarding your word as void. And I think we're in that day and that age where cultures are turning away from the word of the Lord, turning away from God's precepts. And they say it just doesn't apply to us anymore. We're at that point. So just as in the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus is coming at a time that many don't expect, and they'll be spiritually slumbering, not expecting his return. And so for you and I, we're to be watching, and we're to be ready. What does that speak of? Of course, that speaks of our own walk with the Lord, right? I want to be ready. I want to have my heart right with the Lord. I don't want to be caught, you know, when he comes back, you know, I'm doing something that I know I shouldn't be doing. I want my heart to be ready. I want to be pure, walking with the Lord not living in sin. Okay, that, that's, of course, probably the most obvious application. Secondly, there's a lot of people dying and going to hell right now. There's a lot of people that are spiritually slumbering. We need to be out there. We need to be sounding the alarm. Hey, Jesus is coming back soon. You and I are the watchmen on the wall. We're the ones seeing this, the signs coming. We're the ones that are supposed to say, Hey, guys, wake up. Jesus is returning soon. I don't know about... A lot of other churches, because I don't attend a lot of churches, but I don't think there's a lot of churches that teach the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. I think there's a lot of people, there's even a lot of Christians that are slumbering right now. And so we need to be awake and need to be ready. Now I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 1. Go all the way down to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, for days and for years. That word signs is the word ot, and it means signal or beacon, monument or an omen. He says that the lights, that's the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're going to be for days and for seasons. For signs, excuse me, signs and for seasons, for days and for years. On the surface, when you read that in the English, of course, signs and seasons, uh, you know, the, I think of the signs of the seasons, you know, the fall, the leaves changing, and I think of the seasons, you know, summer, winter, uh, spring, and fall. That's not what the word actually means, though. Interesting. Remember the feasts of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 23, the Moed? That's what this word is. It's moed as well. It's an appointment, a fixed time or season, specifically a festival, can also mean an appointed sign or a signal. And so God put these stars, sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, not only to divide the day and the night and to give us what we know as seasons, but also their signs and signals. I have a slideshow I want to show you. Let me turn it on here. I'll move around so that you can see. (laughs) We're on the first slide. Yeah, we'll just let it warm up for a minute here. Actually, you can probably go to the next slide that actually has something. Then we'll know if it's working right. Sorry? Oh. Well, I know this has to warm up too, so... Yeah, there's an image appearing. Do you want to close that right there? Oh, we got it. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and close that? Well, you get the idea. (laughs) How many of you guys have seen that picture on the Internet? Any of you seen that picture? It's kind of hard to tell. The color's not really good, but it's a red moon. 
or a blood moon. Ah, that's the one we were looking for. A blood moon over the dome of the rock, which is that's where, uh, you know, Jerusalem, the Temple Mound. That picture was taken in March 2008. You go to slide two. So there it is again. And if you recognize the wall in the front, that's the uh, the west wall known as the Wailing Wall. And uh, so here we have this blood moon over the dome, over the Temple Mount. Pastor Mark Blitz, who I mentioned he's a Messianic Jew, he saw this on the Internet. He thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. So he went to NASA. And apparently NASA has all past and future lunar eclipses listed for 2,000 years back and 2,000 years forward from today. And the reason why is because it's, it's a ma- mathematical thing. They can figure it out mathematically when they occurred in the past and when they're, when they're going to occur in the future. And uh, so he thought that was pretty interesting. When's the next blood moon? Whoops. <laughs> okay, go to the next slide. Stole my thunder. So the next blood moons, there's four of them, and they're on the years 2014 and 2015. And when you have four blood moons back-to-back with no partial eclipse in between, it's known as a tetrad. So that's known as a tetrad. Four, four moons, two years back-to-back like that with no eclipses in between them. Well, he was, saw that and go, well, how often does that happen? Go ahead and go to slide four, or the next slide. So in the 1900s, according to NASA, there were two tetrads that occurred. Now, based on our modern calendar, you know, this, this, this guy, this pastor, he looked at it and goes, okay, well, that's, that's kind of interesting and stuff, and didn't mean a whole lot to him. So then he was praying about it, and he really sensed the Lord saying, hey, you're using the wrong calendar. You need to put my calendar under there. And so he took the Jewish calendar... And he took it as a template, and he basically slid it under the dates that were there, and uh, something amazing became evident. Go to slide five. So those tetrads for both 2014 and 2015, one blood moon occurs on the first day of the Feast of the Lord, the Feast of Passover, for 2014 and for 2015. And then another blood moon occurs on the first day of the last feast of the Lord, tabernacles, on the very day. So it's almost like God's, you know, you've got these seven feasts of Israel, or the Lord, and God's got a red dot on one end and a red dot on another end. It's like, it's like, hey, take a look at this. Watch this, guys. And he did that for two years in a row. That's the tetrad. So... Remember, he saw two in the 1900s. He thought, well, that was kind of interesting. I wonder when those occur according to the Jewish calendar. So go to slide six. The next one, or the next recent one, I should say, was the years 1967 and 1968. And those also occurred on the first day of Passover and the first day of Tabernacles. What's significant about those dates? Go to slide seven. 1967 was the year that the Middle East erupted in a war against Israel known as the Six-Day War. That was the year, that was the, the, the time when Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, the Temple Mound was conquered and occupied by Israel for the first time in 2,000 years. So immediately following that event in Israel, we had this tetrad in 1967 and 1968. Go to the next slide, because there's one more tetrad in the 1900s. 1948 and 1949 was the one prior to that. What's significant about those years? Go to slide 9. 1948 was the year that the nation of Israel was born after 2,000 years. Fascinating. So after each event, the next two years following those events... There was, a te- there was a tetrad, these four blood moons in the next two years. And they all are tied. They all go back to these events that occurred in Israel. So Mark Biltz, 
went back to NASA, started looking and going back, and he's trying to figure out, if, well, is there any other tetrads? He went back into the 1800s, there were no tetrads. 1700s, there were no tetrads. 1600s, there were no tetrads. In the 1500s, there were seven tetrads, but none of them occurred on the feast days. This is very significant, very, very unique. It's like, what are the odds of that happening? Go to slide 10, if you would. So, we have the next tetrad occurring in the year, years, excuse me, two years, 2014 and 2015. What does that mean for you and I? I'll tell you right now, I'm not predicting the rapture of the church. I'm not saying that's, you know, we're not setting dates here. I mean, you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing. I think you can, you can really mess up yourself if you start trying to figure out exactly the day because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. I say, well, what about the year? Well, you know what? I'm not even going to go there because I don't want to be found to be you know, wrong in any way. I don't want to lead anyone astray. So we're not setting dates here. I'm not predicting the rapture of the church is going to occur then. But you look back at what's happened in the past, and there's definitely a pattern. You can't deny it. There is a pattern there. It appears that every time something extremely significant occurs with the nation of Israel, these tetrads appear. So what about 2014 and 2015? Beats me. <laughs> Who knows? But I'll say this. I believe, based on past, something big is going to happen. And so, oh, we got the next slide up already. Or was that? Does that say what slide number it is? It doesn't, does it? Well, let me just read that to you. The words of Christ there. If you can't see it because my pulpit's in the way. It says, Watch therefore... For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing or rooster, at the crowing of the rooster, excuse, excuse me, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, Jesus says this: What I say to you, I say to all, watch. Go to verse tw- uh, slide twelve. Should be one more slide. Oh, there you go. Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says. Again, remember, that quickly means soon, and it means suddenly. And so we need to have our hearts ready, because it's going to be sudden. You're not going to have time. If you're, if you're holding off getting your life right with the Lord and walking with the Lord, you're not going to have time. When it happens, it happens, and boom, it's done. And so the message to you and I today, first of all, get your hearts right with the Lord. Secondly, what are we focused on, folks? You know, what are we focused on? And again, I'm not going to say, you know, let's say 2014, 2015 is coming up. Let's go stand out here. We'll go find a place like Quarry Hill. We'll go stand there and wait for the return of Christ. No, we're not going to do anything like that, okay? I don't want us to get into the, the, the habit of trying to set dates. But I do believe that Jesus is coming soon, and I think there's plenty of evidence that we are the last generation to to that we are going to see Christ return in our generation. I really believe that. And so, hopefully, if nothing else, this is an encouragement for you guys this morning. I know I'm totally encouraged by it. So, why don't we go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, why don't you guys stand up?